Greetings from upstate New York. Welcome to the Pastor Duke Podcast. Thank you for tuning me in. I have some things on my heart today that I almost guarantee will be a blessing to you and yet a challenge all at the same time. As uh, God was blessing and using me in ministry for nearly 50 years, there was an angst, I like to use that word angst, on my heart to not let the miracles that I was experiencing God do in our midst, in our ministry, I don't want to let those things die. I want them to live beyond me. So in my generation, it required writing. Well, I'm not all that great at writing. It needs somebody to correct it. It needs editing. It needs printed. It needs marketed. That's not who I am. And then uh, my friend John Westfall, have you listened to uh, According to John on your podcast? I am his co-host. John looked me right in the eye after he and I had done three or four podcasts together. He said, you need to podcast. (laughs) And it opened up a whole new world for me. I don't have to write. I can just sit in my office, write out the text, share it. Well, Johnny edits it for me, which certainly makes it come out sounding a lot better than it would otherwise. But I'm able to capture the miracles that I've seen God do in our lives and ministries And they won't die with me. You can hide them in your heart and you can use them as a motivation to find out what God has up his sleeve for you. You know, when God gets involved in our lives, our problems become his opportunities. I guess I'd like to title my thoughts today, Evidence of the Supernatural. Today, I am going to superimpose my life onto the life of Moses. And as you listen, the Holy Spirit will superimpose your life onto the model, onto the model of how God works in our lives. It's the ultimate man, we would have said back in the hippie days. Isaiah reminds us, as the heavens are high above the earth, even so are God's ways above our ways, and his thoughts are above our thoughts. I'm looking back on 50-year journey with Jesus. In those early years, all of what I'm sharing with you today were promises. Now, almost 50 years later, I'm looking back on them, and I'm telling you, they are all promises kept. God is not a liar. His promises are not teasers. They are not empty. They are guarantees. But we got to trust him. I've lived out and have seen God's promises become realities in my life. It's the greatest moments I've ever had. They light my fire. As I look back upon them, they give me a great sense of satisfaction and joy. You surely do not want to miss the big God stuff he has up his sleeve waiting for you. But you need to understand the pattern you need to understand the test. You need to pass the test. They're simple, not necessarily easy, but they're simple. First, we look at Moses. We meet baby Moses um, by the way of his mother, a desperate mother, a Hebrew mother pregnant. If she has a baby boy, Pharaoh's going to kill it. Jews were multiplying exceedingly, and Pharaoh was afraid that there would be a slave uprising in, in 
Egypt would go down, and so he declared war on all Jewish baby boys. She was praying for a little girl, but it wasn't. It was a little boy, and in her desperation, she makes a little ark, a little boat, floats it on the Nile River. Strategically, I believe, the Bible says, in the reeds near the shore where Pharaoh's palace was, and Pharaoh's daughter would come down to the river each day, hoping that she would find little baby Moses. And she did. It was a miracle. The baby was spared. He cried at the perfect timing. Pharaoh's daughter heard it, sends her servants down, take baby Moses from the water. She said, this is one little Hebrew baby boy that my daddy's not going to kill. She adopted him as her own. And this little baby Moses is in line now to become a Pharaoh. Oh, my goodness, the evidence of God. God was moving in Jochebed's life, saving her baby. Well, Pharaoh's daughter needed to find a nursing mother among the Hebrews to, to nurse this baby. Moses' older sister Miriam shows up. Oh, I can get you a gal to, to do that for you. So Miriam goes and gets her mama, Moses's mama, Jochebed, to nurse the baby and they, they nursed the children till about age four. And something tells me that Jochebed was ever in the life of Moses. Don't you think Jochebed bounced little baby Moses on her knee and told him the story of the miracles that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did to spare his life? We're in bondage, but God has a plan for you. You'll be our deliverer. You're on the inside of Pharaoh's palace. You'll have connections. You'll have powers within the Egyptian government to turn and help your people out of this mess. Little baby Moses, I'm sure, heard that story a hundred, maybe a thousand times as Jochebed bounced her little boy on her knee, told him he was special. I believe that would put in any child's heart what I like to call a sense of destiny. He knew that story, yet he grew up in Egypt with all the finest of education, foods, opportunities, wealth, living in a palace, in line uh, politically to become Pharaoh himself one day. But at age 40, this brewing inside of him, okay, I'm living as an Egyptian, but biologically, I'm a Jew. And he saw an Egyptian taskmaster persecuting, beating an innocent Jewish slave. And Moses' anger was kindled. He rose up, he smote the Egyptian taskmaster, hid him in the sand, thinking, believing that the Jewish people would now rally behind him. But they didn't. Pharaoh soon finds out of what Moses did, turns on Moses, going to kill him. Moses has to flee for his life. Moses had a vision. I'm the man. I'm the deliverer. But his vision died. It's a pattern that we're going to see on how God works among men. He has a vision. He has a death of a vision. He flees to the backside of the Midian desert to save his life. You see, now he's going to be hidden away for 40 years, has no clue what's going on. He's disappointed in himself. He's looking back. What a good shoulda. What did I do wrong? I thought God was with me. Who really is this God? I had this miracle of my birth. He's just confused. He's on the backside of the desert, gets married, has a couple kids. He's a shepherd. He went from being prince of Egypt to being a shepherd, from being somebody to being nobody. You see, God doesn't need somebody's. 
He needs nobodies that are willing to listen to him. And so Moses is on the backside of the desert, 40 years past. He's 80 years old now. He's tending the sheep. He sees up on Mount Sinai a burning bush. He chooses to go up on the mountain to see what this is all about. And, of course, it's a divine encounter. Moses, Moses, take off your shoes. The ground upon which you stand is holy ground. Moses complied. He took off his shoes. God spoke to him, Moses, I have chosen you to be the man to lead my people out of Egyptian slavery. Moses immediately objects. There's no way. I tried that. I failed. I thought I could, but I couldn't. I'm a loser. And God did not buy into his excuse. Moses said, the people won't listen to me. They won't believe you sent me, which was true. But God said, Moses, what's that in your hand? Moses said, it's a staff. God said, throw it down. Moses obeyed. It turned into a serpent, probably a cobra. Moses freaks out. Oh, my goodness. He's going to equip Moses with signs, miracles, and wonders. But Moses is being tested now. God says, Moses, pick up the serpent by the tail. Now, I'm sure Moses didn't want to pick up the serpent, but if he did, he'd want to try to pick it up just behind the head so the thing couldn't bite him. God said, no, pick it up by the tail. I think there's a message there. Moses, if I don't do a miracle, you're a dead man. But Moses believed God. He obeyed God by faith. He picked up the serpent by the tail, and immediately it became a staff again. God had his attention, but God had further miracles for Moses. He said, put your hand inside your mantle. We would call that our overcoat. Pull it back out. It was leprous. Oh, no, leprosy. God said, put it back in your overcoat. He did. He pulled it back out, cleansed. Another miracle, another sign. Hey, Moses, pour that water on the ground. He did. It became blood, and Moses was equipped with signs, miracles, and wonders. The evidence of God was going to be upon Moses. Interesting, Moses goes back down, puts the sheep under the care of his father-in-law and tells his father-in-law, I need to go back to Egypt to see if any of my family is alive and if the Pharaoh is dead, perhaps I'd be safe. He never mentioned his father-in-law, Jethro, about the encounter with the burning bush or the miracles that he had just seen. I think there was just a slight element of uh, unsurety with him. Isn't that neat? We have moments of unsurety even as we are in process of obeying God's leadership in our lives. So he gets back to Egypt, and Moses was right. They didn't believe him until he did the miracles, the staff becoming a serpent, blood, the leprosy, and the people of Israel rallied behind him. Moses is our man. God has visited his people. This is fantastic. Moses goes in before Pharaoh. Pharaoh mocks him. <laughs> you want what? You want me to release the, the Israeli slaves? That's the, our financial foundation. We're built upon that. Are you crazy? I'm not going to let them go. Just get out of Dodge. And uh, 
things went from bad to worse for the Jewish people initially. You know, when God begins to move, it doesn't mean everything's going to get all better immediately. It went from bad to worse. And the people spoke of stoning Moses. Get him out of here. He's a loser. So Moses goes back in before Pharaoh, and God says, now it's time. Moses does the miracle before Pharaoh. Pharaoh's magicians also had power to do miracles. Moses throws down his staff. It becomes a serpent. Pharaoh's magicians throw down their staffs. They become serpents, but Moses's serpent ate their serpents. God was making a declaration to Pharaoh that you have power through your demonic magicians, but I am greater. Uh, The God of Moses is greater than the gods of Egypt. God follows with the ten plagues. The rest is history. But the pattern is there on how God works among men. The tests that will face us. Now I'm going to superimpose my life experience on Moses's. And as I do, I believe the Holy Spirit will superimpose your life upon the pattern. It's so exciting to just know how God works so that when we're being tested, we can pass the test and live our lives in this divine expectancy. So I think of my own experience as God had called me to be in ministry. I didn't know what being a pastor was all about, but God knew what he was doing. And there was a clear calling in my life sitting on a rock next to a little waterfall in Pleasant Valley, uh, just outside of a little village called Lucas, Ohio, near Malabar Farm, from some of you who are listening from that part of the country, sitting uh, on a rock reading the book of Jude. God called me to preach. And I'm a nobody from Nowheresville. My daddy was a bartender, my great granddaddy was a bootlegger. My great granddaddy was a moonshiner and I was a drug dealer. I got no religious connections. I don't know what I'm doing, but God put a fire in my heart. He called me to preach and God was going to teach me his ways. God was going to test me along the road, just like he did with Moses. You know, you look back at Moses for a moment, everything God was going to do in his life wasn't for Moses. It was for hurting people that Moses loved. He loved his people. They're in bondage. It's not about Moses. It's about his people. God wants to use him to help other people. And likewise, what God would do in my life wasn't all about me. I'm nobody, but it's about people ultimately in upstate New York that were in darkness that needed to see the light. People were in bondage, needed to be set free. So everything God is going to do in our lives is for the needs of others. It's not about us. You know, when Moses looked back upon his problem and said, hey, you know, I got a problem that people won't believe me. That wasn't really a problem for God. It was an opportunity for God to show himself mighty. And God would follow the same pattern in my life, in your life, as he did with Moses. It's not going to be about me. It's going to be about people who need the Lord. I look back. I've been in ministry now, going on 50 years. I look back and say, why did I get to see God do so much? And I remember those early days, 1972, 1973, up until August of 74, at Cook Road Baptist Church, listening to the preaching of Pastor Jim Standridge and the guest speakers who came to our church along the way, which were great missionaries. And God would speak to me about an area of my life that was wrong, gossip, 
and I would confess my sin. I'd go to the altar and surrender my life to Jesus again and again and again. And I, I, I know there's probably one major surrender, but man, just when God speaks to you, listen to him. He convict me of things. I'd go to the altar. I'd get on my knees and say, not my will, thine be done. I want to be empty of self. I want to be full of you over and over again in those early days. You see, surrender is at the front edge of everything God's going to do in our lives. I remember as he he called me to preach, I'm going to Bible college, and my dad uh, put $1,000, 10 $100 bills in my pocket, fall folded up, put them in my shirt pocket to pay my way to Bible college. He was kind of proud of me, but it was liquor money. And I said, Dad, I love you. I know you want to help me. I appreciate it, but I, I'm kind of against liquor. I kind of speak out against it. I've seen the ravages of drunkenness, and uh, I, I want no part of it, and I, I can't take this money. It's liquor money. My dad was really upset. But in the end, he was proud of me, but he was really upset because I wouldn't take his money. But see, that was a surrender that I was trusting my heavenly Father to provide my needs. I had no idea how this would happen. I liquidated uh, I, I, everything pretty much. I had to turn it into cash. <laughs> it wasn't much. I sold my car and my friend Mark Hager, uh, my first great Christian friend in all the world, Mark gave me his five-speed bicycle to be my transportation my freshman year in Bible college. I downsized. I had a car from when I was 15 years old. I had a pocket full of money selling drugs and hot cars and running around. And, and God said, no, you got to trust me. I sold my car. It was a surrender. It, it, it Look, at the time, it was so obvious, I can't afford this car. I'm just going to get rid of it and trust God for everything. And I did, but God was watching. These little sacrifices, these little surrenders along the way are big in the eyes of God. Had opportunity my senior year to marry the love of my life. A girl who brought me to Christ had gone out and gotten married and had a child and was divorced and came back and begged me to to marry her and I still loved her, but I didn't feel God wanted me to marry a divorced woman. And so I obeyed God rather than her. And I denied myself and I chose to seek God. And I chose not to marry a divorced woman, even though my desires would maybe have done that. But God had waiting up his sleeve for me, the woman of my dreams that I would meet only about eight weeks after that event. I remember meeting Joellen, falling in love. She was very beautiful. She loved God. She was sold out. And I just had a hard time believing that uh, God would give me a woman that I was so um, desirous of. And I'd learned I can't trust myself, my emotions. And I we had a long-distance relationship. Summer of 76, we were together in the fall of 76 and went back to Bible college. And uh, I wanted to marry her, wanted to propose to her, but I had to know it was God's will. And I surrendered her to God. And I said, I'm going to fast. I'm going to pray. Lord, if she's your will, show me it is your will. And if not, I'll break up with her. Just you've got to show me. And I really did, in my heart, surrender my relationship with this beautiful woman that I love with all of my heart. And on the third day of a fast, he showed me. It's amazing. I got a Bible sitting here about three feet from where I'm speaking. If I were open it up to the back, I could show you where Joellen wrote her name in the back of the Bible, the date she got saved. I led people to the Lord along the way, and I'd always write down the date they got saved. And she, the night I met her at a prayer meeting, she opened my Bible and asked me about that. And she just, unbeknownst to me, found a green ink pen, wrote her name, Joellen, 
March 16, 1975, in the back of my Bible. I knew nothing about it. But as I remember back in my freshman year in Bible college, it was date night, Friday night. I didn't have a date or the prospect of a date. I was having a pity party, and I went out running and came back to the backfield behind the school, laid down, tried to get a moment of privacy on a campus where about 2,000 kids lived, trying to get alone. And God spoke to me that night, um, Duke, don't worry about the woman of your dreams. That's my problem. I'll take care of that. You just worry about being the man of God that you need to be. You need to become the man that she needs. I'll take care of that. And I prayed for my wife that night. Uh, Dear Lord, whoever my wife is, wherever she's at, let her know there's some crazy guy here that loves her and can't wait to meet her. And so I was so impressed with that experience with the Lord. I went back up to my dorm room, opened my Bible, Proverbs 31, and wrote down, Dear Lord, make me a 2 Timothy 3.17 man, uh, that the man of God would be thoroughly furnished unto all good works, for none other is worthy. I pray for my wife tonight. I wrote the date down, March 16, 1975. And so... Fast forward to the summer of 76, I meet Joellen and go back to school, fasting and praying. Is she the one? And on the third day of a fast, I saw her name and the date she was saved, March 16, 1975. And I immediately thought of my prayer for my wife, who I did not yet know. And I would turn back to that prayer that I wrote in Proverbs 31. Lord, make me a second Timothy 317 man. None other is worthy. And I saw the date Friday night, March 16th. 1975. Are you kidding me? (laughs) God showed me. That night, I was praying for my wife, whoever she was, wherever she was, 763.2 miles away in Westland, Michigan. Joellen Pengrazi was laying on her bed. She'd been witness to for a a couple years. And finally that night, she let go and let God. I prayed for her at 9 o'clock. She got saved about 11 o'clock. Isn't that amazing? God was moving. He was showing up in my life in supernatural ways. And I knew that I knew that I knew she's the one. I think a few weeks later proposed to her and we've been living out our dreams ever since. But you see, it was surrender. It was letting go and letting God. It was trusting God. If she's not the one, he'll provide. Oh my goodness. This, this trust, this obedience, this surrender is everything. We got married in 77 and spent a year in Springfield, Missouri, where she went to Bible college. Uh, she got pregnant during that year in Bible college. Uh, when that year finished, it was time for us to uh, go to New York. I could do five-hour podcast on the parade of miracles that was about to unfold. But I want to just share with you the principles upon which God does the miracles, through which he shows himself mighty. Our, our surrender to come to New York meant I had to quit my job at Lakes Country Rehabilitation Center. I was the workshop director. I had a great insurance coverage. I had a great vacation plan. It was a great job. I had been elected the RCEP committee under the federal government, health, education, and welfare. I was writing postgraduate curriculum for people in the rehabilitation field in universities. I, I was somebody in that field. I was an up and comer, but that's not who I am. I'm not a businessman. I'm a preacher. I had to leave that job behind to come to New York to plant a church. And I remember Don Elliott, my boss, he said, we'll keep your job open for you for 60 days. <laughs> I didn't need to hear that. No, I'm saying goodbye to one world to enter into another world. But he said it and he loved me. He was a Christian man. He meant what was, he meant it for good. So 
we left by faith. Joel's pregnant. Our car barely runs. We were tested. We get like 90 miles out of Springfield. The car breaks down. We have to get it towed back 20 miles back towards Springfield to get it fixed. We spent about one third of our resources, <laughs> all the money we had just to get the car fixed and back on the road. We're down the road uh, another 30 miles. It breaks down again. A trucker pulls up behind us, said, you blew your engine. My heart's sinking. My wife is crying. This is days before cell phones. We have to walk a half a mile to get to a phone. Uh, I had preached in a little town nearby called Richland, Missouri. I remembered one man in that little church. His name was Bill King. I looked in the phone book, found his number, called him. He just got home from a trucker trip. He uh, he was a, a, a trucker, and he just got back from Florida over the road, uh, semi-truck driver. He said, uh, yeah, you're 10 minutes away. I'll be there to look. He was also a mechanic, quinky-dink, I'm sure. He came upon us 15 minutes later. You didn't blow your engine. I think I can fix this. Got our car started, took it home, spent the night with uh, Bill King and his wife, and she comforted my pregnant wife. It was uh, quite an emotional evening. So I just thought we'd go to church with them the next day. The preacher didn't show up. So guess who preached at that little church the next morning? I did. They took a little love offering, and it was 46 bucks. Bill fixed my car. It was just the... Uh, something that over causes us to overheat and he fixed it on the spot and we're on our way again heading to new york not knowing where we're just going to go to new york and look around but god knew where we would go we would end up here in the albany area and so here we are no support no money how are we going to make this happen but you see our problems were god's opportunities my wife said uh, in reference to where are we going to meet? I thought maybe we could just meet in our little apartment. But uh, she says, see if there's any banks in Clifton Park where we wanted to plant our church because she had had a baby shower in a bank in Mansfield, Ohio, and maybe there'll be a community room in a bank in Clifton Park. We got in the car, we drove up, and sure enough, there was. It was closed. We went down. Uh, the bank was closed. There were business uh, attorney's offices upstairs. We went downstairs. Looked like a community room to me. We got down on our knees and prayed, and we uh, asked God to do a miracle. The next day, we called the bank. When it was open, we came in, and they allowed us to meet there. They said we could meet there for seven weeks for free. In New York, nothing is free. Air is not free. Everything is taxed in New York for free. God provided us a place to meet. Well, we did not meet there seven weeks. We met there for three years. It was a nice place. The main crossroads of our town kind of gave us a little bit of credibility meeting for free. And that was a miracle that our handful of little people that I was meeting going door to door would see that God's hand was miraculously moving among us. Now, Joanna and I didn't have any uh, financial support hardly that came in. I never asked anybody for a penny. We did have my home church, my church in Missouri, a little church in Cohoes, New York, and the New York State Baptist Bible Fellowship that sent us a total of $235 a month for six months. And then after that, it dropped down to $185. Uh, at the end of a year, it dropped down to $100. And that's all with support. It was like 4360 bucks that came in supporting our new work, just a fraction of what we would need to live on. But you see, God is on the throne. He's big. He's good. He loves to show himself mighty on behalf of those who trust him. All those little surrenders along through the years, trusting him, trusting him, trusting him. When we were running out of money, my wife said, call Dr. Henderson, her pastor, Dr. Henderson in Temple Baptist in Detroit. It was a mega church. He said, 
You'd say, trust God with all your heart. Your heavenly Father who seeth in secret will reward you openly. <laughs> and then just before I leave, he puts his arm around me and says, if you ever have a need, don't hesitate to call. And she said, call Dr. Henderson. But no, I believed what he preached, not what he said. And I trusted God. I went to my prayer closet. I asked him to show himself mighty. I got 50 stories that I want to tell you. I got about five minutes. I'll probably just tell you one or two. But you see, it's always the same. It's a miracle. Uh, I guess maybe the first miracle was that car that we that broke down in Springfield uh, trip heading to New York. A uh, couple times it broke down. Well, it, we couldn't get it registered in New York State. It, it cracked windshield. It barely ran. It was an old Ford station wagon. I needed a new car. I didn't have any family up here, nobody to co-sign for me. But good friends of my mom and dad, uh, Bob and Ruth Ferguson, had moved to New York. Turns out they moved about 20 minutes from where we moved to. They were lifelong friends. He was, uh, they were alcoholics. Praise God. Ruth, his wife came to know Christ and was delivered from that, but her husband was an alcoholic and he came up, the town drunk came up and co-signed for my new car. Can you imagine that? God works in mysterious ways and we made our payments and Bob felt great about helping us out. I remember our baby finally was born in October uh, with severely clubbed feet. She was in the hospital uh, a whole week before we could get her out. And I got my first paycheck from the school bus garage. I took, it was $201. I took $20 tithe out for my offering on Sunday. I had $181 in my pocket, went up to the hospital, get my wife and baby out. The insurance covered all but this. You had to pay the balance. $181 in my pocket. Guess what the bill was? How did you know? God does math, $181. I rejoice. God knows my needs before I ask. Our needs were met, and uh, we come home with our baby. But the problem is <laughs> I got paid yesterday, and I'm broke today. had no food in the house. Literally, I'd been eating apples and oatmeal, and that had run out while Joel was in the hospital. We really were living by faith. We're home like five minutes, and Joel realizes there's no food in the house. And uh, the mailman came. I opened up the mailbox. It was a, there was a check in the mail from Dr. A.V. Henderson, her home pastor, for $500. And a little note said, Duke, you never told us where you're gone. I had to call the school. The school told me your home church. I called your home church. They told me, gave me your address. Hope all is well. Check for $500. That, in those days, that'd be like maybe $2,000, $2,500 today. And so God provided our needs over and over and over again, specific amounts of money, just parade of miracles. Now, our people had a 24-year-old preacher who could have passed for 16 by the way I looked, but they were watching God's hand upon us, and they could see God has his hand on this young couple. And as our church began, you know, 20 people, 30 people, 40 people, 50 people, we had the need to buy some land to build a building. We had to be the last story I tell you today. We had $5,500 in the bank shopping for property in our town in New York with $5,500 was hilarious. Two acres, 300,000, three acres, $600,000. We got $5,500. We never found the land. It found us the building inspector of our town. Judd Morris found out about me as a preacher knew I was looking for land, had purchased a farm, was subdividing, invited me out. I looked at the property. It was only an acre and a half. It was just a piece of farmland, no, no power lines, no water, no sewage. It was just a piece of farmland with 300 feet frontage on a country road. 
I called and made some phone calls, and the the value of the land was thirteen thousand. I offered Mr. Morris. I, I told him, I look, we have fifty five hundred dollars in the bank. I'd offer you seventy five hundred dollars. I know it's it's worth way more than that, but I can't give you money that we don't have. If you take fifty five hundred dollars down, we'll give you two thousand uh, dollars more when we can afford it. Probably take two or three months. He said, Well, I'll talk with my wife and get back with you. He did, calls me the next day, refuses my offer. I said, I don't blame you. I wouldn't take it either. He said, I do have a counter offer. I'm like, what's that? He said, (laughs) $5,000. He underbid my offer by $2,500. We just had that little smooch from God, just that little buzz, that little hand of God upon us, little humble group of 40 people meeting in the basement of the bank for free. Thank you, Jesus. Our people were watching, and it's game on. Oh, I wish I had two more hours to tell you the parade of miracles that unfolded. Personally taking care of our needs, taking care of the needs for the the little church to build a building, parade of miracle after miracle after miracle. You see, it all starts back backstage. God speaks to us. We listen. God convicts us of things in our life. We surrender. And upon that foundation, the Spirit of God moves in our lives. And the evidence of the supernatural begins to unfold. The same pattern he laid out for Moses was the same pattern he laid out for me. It's the same pattern laid out for you. So when he speaks to you, listen. When he asks you to make a sacrifice, do it. Trust him. Lean not to your own understanding. Trust him with all of your heart. And he's big and he's good and he loves you. When he sees your faith... He's going to begin to move. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. He wants to show up in your life. And he wants to, for others to see his power working in your life. When they see him high and lifted up, they'll be drawn unto him. And so I hope these uh, miracles that God did in my life are a blessing to you. Just remember, God's got a whole lot lined up for you. And uh, you don't want to miss it. So thanks for tuning me in again. Pray that God uses the podcast for his glory. Share it with your friends. And uh, until next time, Jesus loves you. So do I. Bye-bye for now.